special. So that said, we're starting a new um, series, a four-part series actually, through the book of Psalm chapter 68, and it's called Arise. Um, God's power makes a difference. Arise, God's power make, makes a difference. Um, to kind of intro this, I want to tell you exactly where we're going. Um, first of all, uh, we're going to talk about arise and what that means. Then we're going to talk about power and what that means. And then we're going to talk about righteousness and what that means. And that will, that will end in the message this morning. So before we jump into the actual text, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Okay? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this day that you've given us. And it is a great day. It is, it is a great day for several reasons. One, we have seen a demonstration of a testimony of salvation twice uh, through baptism. Um, we have had a wonderful time of worship where we lifted up your name, and we're very thankful for that. We know that your presence is in this room, and we're very grateful for that. So in the next few moments, I pray that you will speak um, to our hearts from your word to let us know exactly what we need to take from this passage and take during the week so that we can be better servants for you. And so just as we go through this, Father, just unpack your word and just make it very clear the message that you would have for us today. And we are looking for and relying on that to happen. So we ask all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Psalm chapter 68, verse, verse 1 says this. God shall arise, and his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, and they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. God shall arise. Uh, the word, Hebrew word for arise there is yakum. Can you say that to your neighbor? Yakum. Yakum. In fact, I, I think the next time that you're trying to get your kids out of bed, you should just open the door and say, yakum, yakum, right? And you should, you should just make that part of because it's a lot of fun to say and you can shout it and it just sounds, you know, yakum. And it sounds really, really great. So yakum, it means to rise. It means to stand up. Um, in Scripture, it, when it talks about God standing up, it means that God is about to be or is visibly active. So the sense in which I feel like God is sitting, not active, but he's present with me, I want him to arise so that he is active and so that he is moving. That is the sense of, of this word. So we let God arise. This is used several times in the Psalms. And here are a couple. Psalms, in the book of Psalms, it says, rise up and help us, rescue us. It's a petition for God to move, to rise up, to help, and rescue. Here's one that is future. View Sonic. Rise up and judge the earth. So this is a future thing, God in the future coming and judging the earth, making everything right. Another one in the Psalms, and another Psalm says, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. In other words, for judgment. Lift up your hand and move. Uh, go against your enemies. The next one, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Now, we don't like to really talk about God and anger, but God is a loving God, but he gets very angry when it comes to sin. And you can't have love without anger. 
You can't have anger without love. And that's hard for us, especially in our day, to, to contemplate that because we think that love is the absence of anger, but, it, but it's not. Um, God does not... God loves you enough, I think I can put it this way, God loves you enough to not allow you to remain as you are. He's angry because of your sin. He does not like your sin, but he loves you enough to provide a way for you to get out of that sin and live a different life. So that, that it is. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Go against the people that reject you. Next, arise, O God, defend your cause. There's a sense here in which, um, you know, God is trying to redeem the world. And sometimes in the world, it doesn't seem like that's happening. It doesn't seem like the world's being rescued. This is a prayer that says, arise, O God, and defend your cause, your cause of redemption, your cause of restoring the world. Do that, Lord. Psalm chapter 68, verse 1, when it says, God shall arise because of the rest of the passage encompasses all of those ideas in this one phrase. Let God arise. Let God arise. Now there's times in scripture where God was very noticeable in movement in history. Can anybody name one of those in the Bible where noticeably he was moving? Bringing the children out of Egypt. In fact, this psalm will reference that a little later, and we'll talk about that in a, in a couple of weeks. But yeah, he, he, with his power, moved and brought them out of Egypt. It's an amazing story. What's another time? The walls of Jericho. Walked around the walls of Jericho, and Jericho found. That's great. That's the time where God moved. Give me another one. The cross is a place where God physically came in the flesh, and he moved against sin. And though maybe at the moment people couldn't see exactly what that did, you and I know exactly what that did. It freed us from the bondage of sin. It enabled us to be saved. That is um, the decisive moment where God moved. The resurrection right after that would have, is a more powerful um, picture of him moving. What else? The flood. Yeah, the flood. Now, when we talk about the flood, that is, that is a moment in time where God entered into the world and he judged all the sin in the world and just saved one family. So he moved in this. He, he moved, he arose, and he demonstrated his power. Now, Psalm chapter 68 is one of the oldest psalms in the Bible. In fact, in your Bible, how many of you have a psalm of David? Raise your hand written at the top. Yeah. Let me tell you something about that Psalm of David. When you see that, that doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote the Psalm. A lot of times it does, but in this particular case, this does not mean that David wrote this Psalm. In fact, this Psalm was written way before he was born. In fact, this Psalm goes back to a time in Judges chapter 4 where Deborah, the prophetess, and Barak, not Obama, did some things in scripture, right? And, and it's a song that relates around that time. And it has, it has moments in it where it reflects on Judges chapter 4. And then it goes into a future event where God comes into a city and he begins to reign. So, so that is it. So why is it called a Psalm of David? It is because David chose it for a particular celebration that he was a part of to be sung. And it was sung over and over and over. And that celebration was the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem. 
He wanted the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, to be in his city, to be there because he understood the power of God. And so he selected this psalm. In fact, when David would read this psalm, he would think that at the end of it, he was fulfilling the prophecy that was there. And he might have been. Prophecy doesn't always have one, one um, application to it. Sometimes it has multiple and so it very well may be that this is also a fulfillment of that. So he chose this psalm for that particular purpose. Now, just in case you're not familiar with that story, here's how that goes, okay? Long before David was king, and even before Saul was king, who was the first king of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And they took it to a city called Ashdod. And this is... Oh, I need, I need my notes for this. And, and this is what, what they said in Ashdod. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says this. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing every... Sorry, I just cannot see anymore. I... This, this is not the look I'm going for. Okay. It, this just isn't the look I'm going for here with these. It's just not. Okay. But I can't read without seeing it. You know what I'm saying? Okay. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Because, and I want you to say this with me, because... When God arises, his enemies scatter, and those that hate him will flee before him. So it's in Ashdod, and they need to get rid of this thing because they're just absolutely tired of it. So they move it to this city called Gath. Okay? And this is what it says later in that text. It says this. Oh, I'm sorry. Ekron. No, Gath. Did I do that wrong? I did that wrong. I read the wrong. Look, I'm going to read this one that was supposed to be first, and I'm going to read it second, and you just follow along with me, and we're going to continue to go, okay? So the Philistines had captured the ark, 5-6, and the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory, because when God arises... So then what they did was they took this thing to Ekron. It's a place called Ekron. And in, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, it says, The people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Why? Because when God... It happens every time. If God moves, his enemies scatter. His enemies have no power. His enemies shake in their boots. And so the Philistines decided to send this thing back to Israel. So they put it on a cart, and it's kind of a weird story with rats, and some of you don't like rats, so we won't get into that today. And they sent it all the way back, and these people got it. And it's 1 Samuel chapter First uh, Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, it says these words. And the men 
of that city came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they concentrated, consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that ark was lodged in the city, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why? Because when... But... Let the righteous be glad. You see, if you and I are followers of God, we don't have to worry about when God arises. He is for us. He is not against us. In fact, Romans chapter 8 verse 31 would put it to you this way. Oh, sorry. I'm not ready for that either. I'm just all kilter. I think it's because my aunt and uncle are here and my crazy cousins. I think we're just going to lay it there. I'm just, I'm just absolutely killing. Hey. Anyway, nonetheless, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? This passage of Scripture is something that talks about God arising. Go back to the one we just had. And it basically says this, God has moved in the past... He shall rise in my day, and he shall arise in the future. In other words, God wasn't finished arising in the flood. He did not finish moving in history when he took the children of Israel out of Israel. He did not stop moving when David became king and brought the ark back. God still arises. He still moves. He still moves against his enemy. He still does great things in people's lives. And David here is saying, he's doing something great in my day. I'm going to worship him for it. And you and I should say that in our day, we have seen God arise in our own lives and do great and mighty things. Come on. When God arises, his enemies scatter. It's a very powerful movement and motion. I might put it to you this way. God isn't finished moving. God isn't finished moving. Now, I don't know what you've been going through this week. I don't know what's been happening in your life. I don't know the tension that is in your life. I don't know the happiness that is in your life. There's some of you that I know part of your story, but not your whole story of what's happened this week. But this is what I do know. There's some people in here that desire for God to move in their life once again. They are praying for God to move in their life and take care of some type of issue that they're having, that they're struggling with. There's some people in this room that feel like that they have enemies and they're just waiting for God to move and take care of that situation that the enemy has caused. Sometimes our enemy is ourself. And sometimes we struggle with things within our own heart and with our own lives, within our own lives, and we want God to move there to defeat that. I believe this morning that there's a group of people in this room that want God, that wants God to arise in their life. They want God to move in their life. They want God's power in their life, and they want him to move in a very mighty way. I'm here to tell you this morning that God is not done moving. 
God is ready to arise. And God is ready to do great things in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community, in your quote-unquote atmosphere. God shall arise. He's going to arise in my life today, and he's going to arise in the lives of the people in the future that I do not even know. God isn't finished with this world, and he's going to let us know when he's finished with it, when he destroys it. That is encouraging. God shall arise. Now let's talk a few moments about power. A couple of years ago, I ran across this, um, this video on YouTube. It, it actually tickled me to death. And, and it has to do with, um, with uh, the German guy in World War II, um, Hitler. It has to do with Hitler. And it's from some movie that I've never seen. Okay, so it's a clear, I don't even know where this movie comes from, but there's several of these throughout YouTube, and they're pretty funny, and this is the one that I, I would like to show you today. So you're going to have to read, okay? Unless you know German, you're going to have to read this to, to get the concept of, of what's happening. So let's pray. Im Süden hat er die Prozesse genommen und stößt auf Stahlstoff vor. Der Feind operiert jetzt am nördlichen Stadtrand zwischen Frohnau und Pankow. Und im Osten ist der Feind bis zum Wiener Lichtenberg Marzdorf Karlshorst gelangt. Mit dem Angriff Steiners wird das alles in Ordnung kommen. Mein Führer, Steiner, Steiner konnte nicht genügend Kräfte für einen Angriff massieren. Der Angriff Steiner ist nicht erfolgt. Es bleiben im Raum Keitel, Jürgen, Krebs und Butter. two more minutes of that. It is absolutely incredible. Look, I don't know about you, but it is a reality that there's enemies of the church and of Jesus and believers in this world. And there are times where I wonder if we are actually going to win. 
not seriously, but you just wonder. Because it seems like the enemies in this life and in this world are very strong and very powerful and hold offices and can move their will just with a mere blink. And it seems sometimes that they are winning and that they are very, very, very powerful. Here's what I know. We do not have a Chuck Norris that is going to swim the Atlantic to come and save us. But we do have a God that will arise at the opportune moment and save us from our enemies. We have a God that cannot be stopped when he moves. We have a God that when he moves, his enemies scatter and they tremble in their boots. We have a God that when he is working and when he is moving and when he is on the scene, on the scene he cannot be defeated. It is victory. It is victory. And it is more victory. God never, ever loses. Come on. He never, ever loses. And the psalmist here, just in case you haven't got that concept in your mind yet, says this in verse 2. He says this, As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. Have any of you ever lit a match? I know you have, right? And the smoke dissipates within a matter of moments, and you can blow it, and it's gone. If there's a fire just right out here or somebody's burning brush, yeah, that smoke is there for a little bit, but the wind just takes it away. It takes it away and it's gone. That powerful person in your life that has given you grief, that powerful enemy in your life that is against you, those powerful enemies that say that they're going to get rid of Jesus and the church and all believers don't know what they're messing with. And their power, even though it seems strong to us, is nothing when God moves. It is like smoke. Absolutely nothing at all. And just in case you didn't get that, the psalmist says, As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish. How many of you ever burn a candle? Yeah. We had a Christmas party at our house one time. And this is a story I can, I can tell. Um, we had a Christmas party at our, at our house one time, and my wife loves to put candles up at Christmas time. She, she just loves it. Um, she, she does the same scent all the way through the house, you know what I mean? So she has to get the same scent, it has to smell the same, you know, all that kind of stuff, because that's what women do, and it covers up, I guess, the guy's body odor. I don't know what it does, but nonetheless, it, it is a nice Christmassy environment. Well, she placed one in, in the... In the um, Good night. The uh, bathroom. Thank you. Thank you. Because there's some people that know this story. So there's a toilet right here, and there's like this, this, um, you know, this towel right here, and there's this candle. And so it was really pretty. The the you know the towel matched everything in the in the room and stuff. And um, we're we're just sitting there having this Christmas party, and all of a sudden, um, Aaron Sink, who's right over here, says, uh, "I smell smoke," <laughs> and our bathroom was on fire. And that pretty little, you know, towel was gone. I mean, it was, it was burning, burning up, man. And we, we put it out, and it was great. But, but fire, fire is something. That wax then, because it did something to the jar, I don't know what, was all over the backside of that toilet and had 
dried and collected on it. It took us forever to get that to chop off. Why? Because wax melts in the presence of heat, the presence of fire. In fact, if you put wax near a fire, it's going to melt. If you put a candle near a fire, it's going to melt. Wax melts. It seems like it's strong, like when you're holding it, but once it gets close to fire, it melts. So what the psalmist is telling us here is your enemy might have a pretty solid presence, but when God moves, that power is just going to melt away and be nothing at all. Aren't you glad this morning that God is on your side? I would not want to be on the other side of things. I would just not want to be on the other side of things. So how do we know that God is on our side? Well, it says here, but the righteous shall be glad. That righteousness thing is just a little bit irritating, if I'm honest. It's irritating because you desire to live a righteous life, but you know during the week you fall very short of that benchmark. Am I the only one that feels that way? So you look at that and you think, oh my goodness, if the righteous are going to be God, I want to be one of the glad people. I want to be one of the people that rejoice. I want to be one of the people that are jubilant. But I'm not sure that on my own, my righteousness would meet that mark. The Bible would put it to you this way, just in case you think that your righteousness meets that mark. The Bible puts it this way. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. So how in the world can I be a person that rejoices when God moves? That is not on the side of his enemies that is against him. How can I be a righteous individual that is on his side so that when he moves, I rejoice and I'm glad and I'm exceedingly glad? So to answer that question, we need to turn to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. So how does one live right? Because it's, we can't, okay? Verse 30, uh, chapter 32, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. I want to be that person. Don't you? The one that the Lord counts with no iniquity. That is someone that is righteous. So how in the world do I get there? Well, verse 3 says this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here's the first way. When you sin, you do not remain silent about it. Human nature comes into play in sin in this way. It wants you to cover up the wrong that you have done. 
Case in point, most of us are married, right? I don't know if you've ever had an altercation with your spouse, but I have had an altercation with my spouse. We're headstrong, we're different, we think differently, we love each other to death, but in marriage, sometimes you have altercations. Fair enough? When I have an altercation, and I am wrong, it is very difficult for me, <laughs> it is very difficult for me to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> right? You know, I really shouldn't have done that. And you know inside of your heart you really shouldn't have done that. But human nature wants to be silent about it and kind of, kind of cover it up. I'll tell you a little, little bit about me, and I don't want you to tell Nicole about this because this is a strategy that I use that is absolutely wrong, but it happens. We have, a, we have a little altercation, right? And I do something wrong. And I know that I need to say I'm sorry. And in my mind, I'm saying I probably need to say I'm sorry. But I really know I need to say I'm sorry for it. What I'll do is I'll just let time pass. And maybe she'll forget that it happened. Right? Or, or maybe time will pass. And I will just buy some flowers or something. And kind of just, just pretty it up a little bit. And never really have to say, I shouldn't have done that. You know why that is hard for me? One, I'm human, and two, I hate to be wrong. Right? There's only one man in the world that I've met that doesn't mind being wrong, and that's Brad Ratledge. He told me that before, before the service. He doesn't mind being wrong, so his marriage must be heavenly. Right? <laughs> but when I'm wrong, it's hard for me to do that. And when you, do, when you participate in a sin and you are silent about it and do not verbalize that that is a sin, that is the moment that you have disconnected from the fellowship of God. Do not be silent about your sin to the Heavenly Father, to the God on the throne. Tell him about that sin and say that you are sorry. Lord, I am sorry I have done that. Now, I'm a little bit better with God in confessing than I am my wife. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Just being real here. Because for some reason, God in the privacy. But let me tell you this. If you have wronged someone else, and you only ask God for forgiveness and not them, you've only done half your job. Repentance is when I know that I have done something wrong, and I ask forgiveness for my Heavenly Father who forgives that sin, and then I go to that person and say, I am sorry. If they choose not to forgive me, that's on them. It's not on me. But I have taken the step to say, I am sorry. I'm really sorry that happened. Please forgive me. And that part of the forgiveness cycle is complete. Do not be silent. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I want you to notice there. Um, oh, wait. In verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Look. If you've done something wrong, do not wait to ask God for forgiveness. You need to do it while he can be found. 
I would say this two ways. First of all, if you're sitting here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have never asked him to forgive you of your sins, do not wait another moment to do that. There is coming a day where God will not be able to be found for salvational purposes. It is either when you die or when he comes back to rule the world. One of those two things, it's going to happen, and you better have all that settled before that happens. There's coming a time where God will not be found for you. Second, you and I as believers, we need to make sure that we keep a short account of sin so that we have that fellowship with God and we live righteously so that when he does move, we can rejoice. We go to him and we tell him. Tell him while he can be found. Verse 8 says this, and this is talking from God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a brittle, or it will not stay near you. Repentance does not only include, it's not only about you asking God to forgive you of your sins and you asking someone else to forgive of the wrong. Repentance has also to do with a change in your life. A change. If you're repenting to God and repenting to someone else and you never change, you're not really repenting to God and you're really not sorry. Come on, we've all known that person that tells us that they're sorry, but we know in the next five minutes they're going to do it again. Come on. You do not need to be that person. Real repentance is when we say to God, hey, I'm sorry for doing that and I want to change. You go to that person and you say, I'm sorry for doing that and I'm going to change. I know that there's a change that needs to happen in my heart and in my life and I need to, make those, I need to take some steps in order for that not to happen again. Repentance is about us getting forgiveness from God and us realizing we need to make a change and taking the steps to do that. God says here, you are not alone. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So it's, it's, so it's like a change. The other thing repentance has is a strategy not to do that again. Okay, so we make a decision not to change, and then there's some type of strategy that keeps us from doing it. In verse 9, it says, be not like a horse or a mule. Now, I know some of your enemies, you think of them as mules, but this is not what that's talking about. Without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a brittle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, you need to put things in place that cause you not to go back to that sinful activity. You need to put things in place that controls you in a way that you do not find yourself back into that sinful activity. If you have a problem with getting drunk, you need to stay away from bars. If you have a problem with pornography, you need to put things in place for the internet. And if that doesn't solve the problem, you don't need the internet. Stay away from it. Come on. If you are, are prone to lie, do not put yourself in a place where you're going to lie to somebody. 
stop your mouth before it opens up. If you're prone to judgment, when you get that feeling, put that brittle in your mouth and say, no, I'm not going to be judgmental at this moment. I'm going to be loving instead. And you put that in your mouth and you, you have something in there to help you with that. Some people use accountability partners. This is a great idea. You have an accountability partner, that, and you get them on the phone, and you say, hey, I feel like doing this. Help me out. And maybe they have to come to your house to sit with you so you're not alone, so you don't participate in that sin. Or maybe you get upset at your wife, and you know you're just about to lose it and get that anger back in, and you call your friend, look, I'm really angry. I just need some help. And that friend talks you through that and keeps you accountable. Maybe you need a friend that every now and then just calls you on the phone and asks you some tough questions. For ladies, it might be something like this. It might be, um, have you gossiped today? Have you told untruths today? Have you, have you had a bad attitude today? How's your walk with Christ? For guys, it might be, is, is your eyes protected? Is your mind clean? Have you, have you stayed away from, from drink because you have to, because you, every time you do that, you get drunk? I mean, is there, is there somebody in your life that's calling you on the phone to say, hey, and asking you the tough questions? Are you willing to do that? You see, repentance is, yes, saying, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to the person, but it's also saying, I want to change, and I'm going to take the steps to change, and whatever strategy I need to do, I'm going to put it into place so that I do not go back. Why? Because the God of the universe, who has all power, has made me to for something greater than this sin that I'm participating in and the product that it produces. God has created me to be something great in his power and in his presence that is far greater and far more about redemption than this little pet sin that I have over here that I bring out every now and then that I seem to go back to. God is saying, I am here to help you. I am here to instruct you. I am here to give you the tools that you need not to go back there. And I tell you, there isn't a person in this room that doesn't have that one sin that they need some type of strategy to get rid of. They need some type of preventative in their life so that they do not go back to it. Everybody in this room, because we are fallen, needs that in our lives. And it's worth it. Because when God comes back, I want to be excited about it. I want to be the one that is righteous, that has kept a short account of my sins, that is following him with all my heart and all my might and all my soul, that when he returns, I'm like, yeah, get him, Lord. Woo! We're winning. This is awesome. Praise God. He is here. He is making things right. This is incredible. This was worth fighting against the sin that so easily besets me. This was worth putting things in place so I wouldn't get there. This was worth, worth asking him into my heart to save my soul. This is worth it. This is everything that the Bible says, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. God, I'm glad you're arising for the final time. That is what needs to be on my heart. I don't need to be over here thinking... I know the sin is forgiven under the cross, but I'm still involved in it. And now I'm going to have to face him because I never really repented and used his power to get it out of my life. This does not mean that you go to hell. 
but it does mean that you approach God in a different manner. Are, are you tracking with me? When he arises. And I would rather not approach him this way. I would rather approach him as, I've done the battle. No, I'm not holy, but I've put the strategy in. I've done the best I could, and I'm so excited that he is here because the struggle is going to be gone. There are some people in this room that needs God's power to arise in their life. They need to grab a hold of that power so that they can get rid of that sin that so easily besets them so that it no longer has power over them. In fact, I'd put it to you this way. They need to grab a hold of God's power in such a way that that sin becomes smoke. So that that sin becomes like wax and no longer has control over their heart, mind, and soul. Is that you today? So with every head bowed and every eye closed, you may be sitting here today and God has revealed something to you that you need to repent and confess of. Something that you need to come up with a strategy with to change. And you know you haven't changed, but you want to today. I want you to take the mo- this moment and pray to God, ask him for forgiveness, and ask him to show you what type of stuff you can put into place so you will not go back to that particular sin in your life.